0: Now, most unbelievers can quote 1 John 4, 16, though they don't know where it comes from, but they can say the Bible says God is love. That's true. But most of them cannot quote Hebrews 12, 29 that says, our God is a consuming fire.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the middle of a series in which Dr. Brogy is looking at the seventh chapter of Daniel, a chapter which is rich in prophecy. Much has been surmised and written about the coming Antichrist, but we get a clear picture of his methods and his fate as we read Scripture. And as Dr. Brogy continues today, we see that the ultimate fate of the Antichrist is the lake of fire, but before he meets his destiny he will take as many with him as he can let's rejoin dr Brogy now as he addresses the ten nation kingdom mentioned both in daniel and in the revelation
0: this fourth empire will end with the second coming of Christ. And so in this passage, in these verses, there's a big gap of time between the beginning of the fourth kingdom and the end of this fourth kingdom. Look at verse 7. After this I kept looking, in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. That part of the prophecy all happened in the early part of the Roman Empire. But look at the rest of the verse. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. That part has never happened. Rome never had ten horns. Yet we are going to see that he is now looking way down the corridors of time because look in verse 8, we're going to read of this coming Antichrist. In verse 9, of the Ancient of Days. In verse 13, of the appearing of the Son of Man where his kingdom is established. So this fourth kingdom, unlike Rome in its early days, had ten toes, ten horns, ten kings. And unlike this fourth empire that had... At its origin, two legs of iron, representing the eastern and western segments of the empire, prophesied ever before it happened. In this final form, there are two feet representing ten toes. And the feet, if you remember, were made, according to Daniel 2, of both iron and clay. Iron and clay do not mix. These ten nations are distinct, yet they will be unified, and in that sense, they will have some iron strength. Now, we're going to discuss when we come to the Revelation after Daniel next fall, I suspect we will be there. When we come to the Revelation, we are going to see that there is a ten-nation kingdom identical to what Daniel speaks of that Revelation 13 speaks of. What is this ten-nation kingdom? Well, hold on to your seats. We'll come to it, all right? Now, for the the meantime, let me just say, as Daniel says in the 12th chapter, this will take place in the latter days. We know that much. During the time of the great tribulation, there will be a ten-nation confederacy from among whom will come Antichrist. Now, we finished last time with verse 8, where we studied the advent of the Antichrist. Let's review it briefly, verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So here we have this ruler, and he's a take-charge kind of guy. There are many names given to him in scripture, as you can see on the slide. He's called the king of fierce countenance in Daniel 8. He's called the little horn. He's called the prince who's to come. He's called a despicable person. He's called the willful king. He's called in Zechariah the prophet, the, a foolish shepherd, the worthless shepherd. He's called the beast in Revelation 11, Revelation 19. He's called the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. But most of you know him by his most popular name, used only once in the Bible by John in 1 John 2, the Antichrist. Now, from verse 8, we learn several things about this coming ruler. You're going to learn more about the Antichrist and the prophet Daniel than any other book in the Bible. The Revelation will add some important details But in the 8th chapter, and then in the 11th chapter, we're going to learn so much about this person. But first, we studied something about his origin in verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. I want you to notice that it is out of these ten nations that we are introduced to an 11th horn by which the Antichrist will come. A horn, if you remember, Daniel tells us in this chapter, represents a king. And so when we're talking about a little horn who comes up among these kings, he's talking about another king who will suddenly come to the forefront. And this king, this little horn, is not a part of this ten nation confederation. The Hebrew is very specific. He comes up among this ten nation confederation. Here's a picture of that little horn. Ha ha ha. So, out of these ten kings that will rule simultaneously, one will come, he'll uproot three others, and he will dominate the world. So, that's his origin. Then we studied his obscurity. While I was contemplating, the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. He's referred to as a little one. So we have this leader who starts rather diminutively. He's a little horn, but this little horn who starts small is going to become a big shot of sorts. He has a very insignificant beginning. In fact, there are three kings who think they can challenge him. Three presidents, three prime ministers, whatever they are in that day. And so he's going to explain it to them a little bit clearer. And he will uproot them. And as we will see next week from verse 20, he will become the greatest of them all. People will be surprised. This man who will come to the forefront, one whom they never would have thought of this little horn. We also studied last time his observation. Do you remember that in verse 8? This horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man. He may seem small, but he is wise in the world's perspective. And we studied some verses where eyes in Scripture describe insight, intelligence, prudence. This Antichrist is characterized by an unusual ability. He is shrewd. He is knowledgeable. He will be able to solve problems that no one else will be able to solve. But of course, if you've read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation 13, the reason is it's because he has supernatural power from the devil himself. Then we learn something about his oratory. Do you remember that? Verse 8, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Friend, you talk about an orator you talk about a man with a mouth. He's talking about a man who can capture audiences, a person who can inflame the passions of people, a person, and he's best described when you put 8 and 11 together of this book, with a big mouth. He's a big mouth guy. I don't know how else to describe him. He's a man of great boasts. He'll be able to convince the world that up is down, down is up. Black is white, white is black. He'll convince you to sell your mother to slavery, and you'll think you're doing God a favor. If it were possible, Jesus said, he would deceive even the elect. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Now, that's all by way of review to set the context. Now, in addition to the nature of the nations and the advent of the Antichrist, we want to begin today with the judgment of Jehovah. All of a sudden, Daniel's dream, in the midst of all this turmoil, begins to come into a new picture beginning in verse 9. You see, it'd be very easy to read the first eight verses and think, man, this world is a mess. This is depressing. And it's only going to get depressingly worse. But God now gives us some heavenly perspective that He is in control. So when you come to verse 9, you move from the scene on earth to the scene that is in heaven. We move from Satan's little horn to the Ancient of Days. We move from the big mouth blasphemies of the Antichrist to the worship of angels before the throne of God. And so God takes Daniel to what is going to happen in the future following this revived Roman Empire. Let's read verses 9 and 10. Follow along. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. This is the only time in all the Bible where God the Father is referred to as the Ancient of Days. We have a song that has us sing on occasion about it. And here God is pictured in human form. Now understand, God is not a human. God doesn't have a human body. Mormonism is all wrong. You know, they deny every fundamental doctrine of Christianity. Don't be deceived at thinking that they are Christians. They are not. They deny the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the authority, the inerrancy of the Bible, even the virgin birth. They say God the Father. They use a text like this. They'll show you when they come to their homes a picture of God the Father. And he came down in a human body and had a relationship with Mary, and that's how Jesus came. Absolute heresy. But sometimes God uses pictures, theophanies, in order to help us to understand who God the Father is. God is spirit. The Bible teaches that no one can see God and live. I want you to see how he manifests himself. And by the way, let me say, no one could see God the Son and live had he not incarnated himself in human flesh. But the Bible is very clear that no one has ever seen a full real manifestation of God the Father, and no one ever will see that. Paul says that in First Timothy six, that God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor in eternal dominion, amen. Now that doesn 't mean you won 't have a fuller relationship with him in heaven than you do now. I already love my heavenly Father and i 've never seen him and i can 't wait to get to heaven when I will have a body that will never be able to sin a glorified body, and I will understand him so much more fully, but he 's giving us a picture of God the Father in human terms so that we can understand something about his holiness, his glory, and his eternality and By the way, if you 've read Revelation one, this is is the exact same description of God the Son in that chapter. And we're not surprised because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, I want you to notice that in this vision, lest anyone think that the Antichrist and the kingdoms of men are going to pull something over on God, the Ancient of Days is pictured here in the role of judge. There are several truths that I want you to see about God as judge. First, he is the forever judge. Jot that down. He is the forever judge. We read here in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up and as we'll see in a moment the judgment is about ready to take place god is getting ready for the judgment so the courtroom is being made ready and so thrones are set up please note there is the throne singular and then there are thrones plural why doesn't the old testament name these thrones again Because when we come to the revelation, we discover that the 24 thrones represent the 24 elders of the church. The church was hidden in the Old Testament, but Paul was privileged to unveil that mystery. And so the Ancient of Days, the scripture says here, took his seat. And this scene, Perfectly corresponds with what the apostle John writes in Revelation four and five. The Ancient of Days here a reference to God the Father as distinct from God the Son, who is about to be presented in the thirteenth verse. That's the same picture in Revelation four, where you have God the Father, you have thrones of the twenty-four elders, and you have in Revelation five and verse seven God the Son being presented. Now, again, this term is in human terms to help us to understand the nature of God, of his eternality. You know, my children would always ask me, well, who made God? And my grandchildren say, granddaddy, who made God? And I said, well, if someone made God, then that person would be God. We can't put our puny little finite minds around it but we just inherently know it. Why? Because as Ecclesiastes says, God has written eternity into our hearts. And so Psalm 90 in verse 2 tells us, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We can't explain it, but we know it is true. God never had a beginning or an end. He is forever and ever. And he's called the ancient of days. Someone who is old hopefully has wisdom. Well, God is infinitely wise. And only God is eternal. Only God is infinite. And only God has the infinite wisdom to help us as little puny finite people to understand those things that are important. So he's the forever judge. Secondly, he is the faultless judge. He is the faultless judge. We're told in verse 9, his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Wool. And so his dazzling white garment, his vesture, and the hair of his head is white as wool. That speaks of God's perfection. That's why God tells us in Isaiah 1.18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. King David gives us the same picture in Psalm 51.7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And when you see terms like white as snow or pure as wool, it's speaking of the absolute purity and holiness of God. And that's why the Apostle John in Revelation 1.14 describes Christ in these words, his head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. And so it's not surprising to us, is it? that the saints in heaven are clothed in garments of white because God will have finished and completed our salvation and we will be absolutely, at that point, eternally pure. Now, in addition to him being the forever judge and the faultless holy judge, I want you to see he's the fiery judge. We read here at the end of verse uh, 9 and the beginning of verse 10, his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were like a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Now, God is often pictured as fire in Scripture and is repeatedly used to speak of his wrath and his holy hatred towards sin. Now, most unbelievers can quote 1 John four sixteen, though they don't know where it comes from, but they can say the Bible says God is love. That's true. But most of them cannot quote Hebrews 12, 29 that says, Our God is a consuming fire. That speaks of God's justice. That speaks of his wrath. In Psalm 97, we read, Cloud and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and judgment, justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes out from before him and burns up his adversaries round about him. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 1 that when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven, he shall come with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He is coming to execute judgment on this world. God's throne is bathed in fire because he is holy, he is righteous, and he is a consuming fire. Don't get the idea that God is up in heaven saying, naughty, naughty, naughty little children. Now don't do that. Oh, no, 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 no. He has a holy hatred for sin. He will punish sin. Ecclesiastes says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. You know, I often apply that to capital punishment. I believe the Bible teaches it. You say, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work because if a Mayan gets tried in 1980 and he gets executed in 2015, there's a problem. In some countries of the world, you get tried on Friday and you're hung on Saturday. Hmm. <laughs> people think twice. Uh, I'm not saying that we should discount the justice process, but listen, a lot of people in this world think, oh, I'm sinning with impunity. God's not going to do anything. I am just fine. I want to tell you, someday judgment is going to show up, and He is going to come. You should write out in the margin next to Daniel 7 and verse 10, Revelation 20 and verse 13. It's very interesting that the judgment that we are going to read about in a moment concerning the Antichrist here in Daniel 7 is identical to the judgment that all the lost will face that's described in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Let me read We read in verse 11 of that chapter, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And let me just say in passing, a lot of people in John's day thought that if you were lost at sea, and many were, and your bones were eaten by the fish, that somehow you could escape the judgment of Almighty God. But buried in the deepest ocean of the world will not allow you to escape the judgment of God. If you are buried in the deepest place on the planet, the Spirit of God will come and find you and put you back together. If you're disintegrated from the face of the earth by an atomic bomb, God will get you. I told the people yesterday at the funeral I was preaching that Christians historically never cremated their dead. That's a pagan practice in our day. Most Christians do it innocently and ignorantly But they would never have done that in biblical times. The only people who burned their dead were pagans in the Scripture. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were all buried. Joseph was buried. John the Baptist was buried. Ananias and Sapphira were buried. And when God himself performs a funeral, he, God, buried Moses. We studied on Easter Sunday that putting the body in the ground is symbolic of putting a seed in the earth. We expect it to come back to life and we do so in faith. Now listen, if your loved one has been cremated, it's not a problem for God. Whatever has happened to it, the scripture is clear, the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. What does that mean? It means death, which is symbolic here of the place of the grave and Hades, the place of the soul. God will bring the two together and each and every soul be judged according to their deeds. Why? Because your deeds will show whether or not you've been born again. Now, if you know this context, he's not talking about one big general judgment. In Revelation 20, the only people present at the great white throne judgment are the lost people of all time. And their deeds will proclaim that they were lost. Even the good moral man who did things for his own glory, his own benefit, but not for the glory of the one who redeemed him by his precious blood. And hell won't be the same for every person. And the perfect equity of God... Hell will be worse for some people. It's described in horrific terms for anyone who goes, just as heaven is described in marvelous terms. But heaven's not the same for every believer. God evaluates our works, not to see if we go to heaven. That's settled ever before you die, whether or not you've trusted Christ. But how you will spend eternity in heaven. Listen, you will not be able to hide from a holy God. You can't pull the dirt over your face and hide in some grave. He's coming after everyone. Listen to Revelation 20 and verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is present to show that none of the people there at this throne have their name in that book because they were lost and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Fire repeatedly, habitually, as a picture of the judgment of God. Now go back to Daniel 7. In addition to him being the forever judge, the faultless judge, the fiery judge, I want you to see he is the final judge. Verse 10 says, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open." Now, the word in Hebrew, Marriott, is a mathematical term like tithe. And the King James and the ESV is correct in interpreting it, though not translating it. They render it 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And that's the thought behind the Hebrew text. Standing around God attending him are 10,000 times 10,000, a myriad of angels. Someone asked me when I did our course in angelology, do we know how many angels there are? And the answer is no, but we do know there was a fixed number made never to create anymore. Angels don't procreate with other angels. That's why Jesus said in heaven we'll be like the angels. They don't have little babies called cherubs. A fixed number was made for all time, but we do know from Scripture there are millions upon millions of angels who surround the throne of God to execute his will. Furthermore, we learn here from verse 10, 10, that Daniel saw that God as the judge, when he convenes the court, he has the books. The books. You know, God has a library. We're going to study that library when we come to the 12th chapter. And this particular books that are open concern one man, in particular the Antichrist. And of course, when we come to the interpretation of the dream in verse 26 next time, But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Now, today, criminals go loose. Sometimes they get off on a technicality. There's not a reasonable amount of evidence to show that they're guilty, or maybe the evidence was collected in an improper way. They had an illegal search warrant, or they tapped your phone when they should not have been, and so it was not permissible in court to prove that you were wrong. But I want to tell you, none of God's evidence is going to be thrown out of court. No lawyer will be able to get some man off. God is a God of justice. God's taping all your phone calls. He's reading your email. He knows the thoughts of your heart. The Bible says in verse 10, and the books were opened. The books were opened. God has it all recorded in his ledges. Now, you may have gotten away with something. You may have stolen something and no one knew it. You may have committed adultery and you think no one knew it, but God wrote it down and He is the final judge that you must contend with. Revelation 20 verse 12 says, and I saw the dead, the great and the small. No one is excluded from this judgment. Doesn't matter if you have a big name, a big shot or a little shot, they're all going to be there the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Look, if your name is written in there, all the other books have been erased. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Now, God has a book, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, and in it are all the forgiven people for all of eternity. But then He has the books documenting the sins of the lost, by which He will ultimately judge
1: them. To listen again to today's study or any of the messages in our series from the book of Daniel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN9. Tomorrow we conclude our message entitled, The Consummation of Time. Join us then as we search the scriptures.